Hello, and welcome to the latest INSA Insights episode. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to do something that we've been talking about doing for uh, a little while among the INSA leadership, uh, and that's to do a year in review of 2022, as well as a year ahead uh, to see what's going to be happening for NGO security managers in 2023. Uh, I'm joined today by Ben Longworth, who's Director of Security with OnCall International, and Joe Gleason, who's Director of Global Risk Management with AHT Insurance. Uh, ben, Joe, welcome to Insa Insights. We're thrilled to have you both. Thank you for having me. And so I guess I'm going to jump right in here. Uh, you know, this has been a very uh, tumultuous, to say the least, last couple of years. I think we could probably say that every year we say that, but uh, I think this year in particular. Um, and so I'm just going to start off with asking you guys, um, you know, what are your top five uh you know, things that, that were sort of the most influential, impactful when it came to uh, NGO security management or that NGO security managers really had to pay attention to. What are your, what are your thoughts? Ben, I'll start with you. Okay, thanks. Uh, I, first of all, I just wanted uh, to state that uh, these thoughts are my own. And while I work for On Call International, uh, uh, those thoughts are personally my thoughts and aren't attributed to my organization, just as a disclaimer right off the bat. Um, but, I, you know, certainly a tumultuous year, as as we're all aware. The big one that we're all thinking about, of course, is the Ukraine crisis, which I'm sure we're going to talk about deeper on this episode. Um, and the impact that had both at the time of, 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 of sort of, you know, about a year ago now, right? But also throughout the year of groups that weren't necessarily just in Ukraine, but ones that are either working on the periphery or actually working in Ukraine as part of the relief effort in supporting that. Yeah, and you know, to add to that, I think one thing to to, to think about there is also the the sort of the the collateral damage, for lack of a better word, of the Ukraine crisis uh, in the aid sector, where we saw you know massive concerns about famine and things like that because food supplies and things that normally came out of Ukraine, wheat and the like. Uh, you know, just weren't making it. And so that sort of magnified things that were already, you know, NGOs were already facing in the field. Uh, yeah. Joe, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, certainly Ukraine is right up there, right? I think both uh, to the, the immediate uh, issues in Ukraine, the surrounding countries as well, some of the destabilization um, that thankfully hasn't, hasn't progressed. Um, and then I think, Omri, as you know, the wider... Um, you know, I, I think geographically, a couple couple places hop out to me. I would I would say, um, you know, while while it started in 2020, I think Afghanistan still you know, there are still ripples of of Afghanistan, both for those operating in the country, and we saw towards the end of the year a uh, an effort to to limit or or uh, you know have uh, NGOs not employ female staff and, and a whole bunch of issues had, had sort of come up through the year. I think we're going to continue to see those kinds of challenges for NGOs as well as challenges in the country for um, for NGOs implementing programs um, and for Afghans living there. But also I think um, last year, remarkably, um, a number of our clients certainly were still in the final throes of of helping, assisting uh, at-risk Afghans who had evacuated to third countries. Um, so sort of a long tail on that. Um, hoping that doesn't stretch into 2023, but that certainly was a uh, an issue that uh, that continued and was present yeah. in 2022. 
Uh, we looked at, so we're looking at that region there. Anything else in the South Asia region that pops to mind? You know, I, I, I would just throw out not so much a regional issue, although there are regional manifestations of this. We saw one just the other day in, in Turkey and Syria. It's natural disasters as a, as a, a risk in 2022. Um, you know, the Pakistan floods uh, come to mind in, in South Asia. But um, on, on the, uh, from where I sit, both with our, our NGO clients, but even more broadly, um, the impacts of climate change are being seen kind of wide and far, and some of them, are, some of them are these headline grabbing, you know, whether it's uh, the floods in Pakistan or, or a, a severe storm, or it's even just smaller scale flooding. We had a, a client; there were there were flash floods in Chad, um, where it really impacted a, an NGO's ability to support um, refugee population that they were working with. All resolvable ultimately, but nevertheless a risk and um, something that had to be managed, responded to, and then ultimately managed. And I think we're just going to see more and more of that. Yeah, and, and take, talking into that a little bit more about the climate change and security issue. You know, what can NGO security managers do? Uh, and this is for both of you guys. What you know can NGO security managers do to prepare themselves for that sort of intersection of climate change and security issues? Uh, both the broader ones that are sort of the really, uh, ec you know, sort of macro level things, but even to that granular, how do we, you know, look at resources that are to then affect our staff? And obviously that's what's going to affect the NGO security managers the most. Um, what are some of those things that they can be looking at to sort of prep themselves for, for ongoing climate change issues? I would say treating resilient, just the overall theme of resilience that you would, as any organization would, uh, operating domestically, but really bringing that resilient theme to your international programs, right? On the local emergency level of how do you certainly respond if you have a serious flood, things like that, wildfire, earthquake, any anything kind of in those general areas. But then how do you, from a business continuity perspective, get those programs back up and running quickly in, you know, as far as like the critical functions? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think wrapping that into your uh, you know, risk register and then tying some specific mitigation measures and resources to make sure you're really, addre really addressing the potential risks. And that's going to be country by country, right? Some places it may be, um, you know, maybe flooding and other places it may be storms. Um, but, but knowing in that, that country specific context, what is that climate related risk and what can, what can you do to, to mitigate and ultimately respond? You know, I think prior to COVID, uh, you know, I think a lot of organizations had, you know, pandemic in their broader risk registers, but, um, we were reminded how much, how much we really need to tie those mitigation measures to that risk, what might that risk look like? And I think that exercise is is super important um, to really to really get granular and focus on it. And climate change is another good example of where we got to build that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, moving back uh, into the sort of the the major topic, I think that was uh, you know on people's minds was certainly Ukraine, and we, you, Ben, you mentioned that. Um, you know, I think that's a that's probably one that's going to go into 20 as one of the top five in 2023, I'm sure, uh, of your list. Uh, but, you know, from your side, your perspective, what were what were some of the major issues that NGOs faced that you knew of 
or that security managers writ large were facing with uh, dealing with operations in, in Ukraine and surrounding areas. So for those organizations that I think already had a footprint, um, what I, I thought was very interesting was, well, one, having to pivot whatever their mission is within the context of a, a full-blown war conflict if they weren't, you know, far out uh, east originally. Um, so pivoting that, but I'd also say one of the things that I really came across was just the shift in as far as um, evacuations and things along those lines for the local national population, which, as Joe and I have discussed in the past, isn't always necessarily feasible. It has to do with you know refugee issues and border restrictions. And, and certainly we saw uh, the welcoming of Ukrainian refugees you know, f- you know, into those countries on, on the western border where we were able to facilitate ground evacuations. But of course, those were, uh, for the most cases, just only elderly, females, uh, you know, children, things along those lines. So organizations that were operating in Ukraine, but could had to send maybe their family members back over the border, that sort of separation is a really unique evacuation scenario. Yeah. And I think it also expanded on our views of duty of care. Uh, where mm-hmm. it's not to say that organizations didn't have duty of care to their local staff and employees, but a lot of that time, and you've said this before, a lot of times it stopped at the border. So like anything from a duty of care perspective that organizations were able to do within the confines of you know, the country, they would do. But this time, as you said, because it was so welcoming that like getting people out made us shift and made NGO security managers and their broader you know, HR departments, et cetera, shift to a larger duty of care that they probably weren't used to. Um, which came with its own level of, uh, of risks and things like that. Yeah and, it, yeah. and it wasn't just getting them out of the country, right? It was sort of that onward. And w- where does that line end, duty of care wise? But what co- what is their end destination for a country? Where are they going to live? How are they going to be set up? Which I'm, I'm sure you came across that, Joe. Yeah, you know, and I think this follows on. And we can't dismiss the, 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 the recent precedent with Afghanistan, right? where a number of of organizations evacuated at-risk Afghans. Um, And and so I think that started to set into motion uh, a pattern, maybe. It's too strong of a word, but certainly an established precedent of um, supporting the evacuation of local national staff. Lots of differences between the two situations. Don't want to, you know, suggest they're too similar, but I think at the broad sort of global level, um, there are enough similarities that I think we've started to establish some sort of practice within the community. But I think, you know, that was that was the 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 kind of first phase of the the response or, or the support uh, to those in the Ukraine crisis. The, the next to me was then how do you support remote programming? So now your your teams were in the border re, border countries, Poland largely, but also elsewhere, Romania, Slovakia to a certain degree. All right, now they wanted to do some remote programming. Um, how do you, how do you support that? How do you you know? And then there was the sort of phase we're in now, which was resume on the ground programming in in Ukraine, and and we've watched. A number of NGOs, initially in the pure humanitarian space, but increasingly in the broader development, democracy rights, um, civil society space, return, resume operations in Ukraine in in various capacities, a lot with 
sort of short-term travel of, of internationals and Ukrainians that were based in, that are based in Poland, right? They're, um, and then in-country Ukrainian teams. So we've watched a lot of our our clients, you know, look at all the all the basics, right? The the risk assessments, the plans and procedures, the resources to support. Um, whether that's assistance providers or insurance, um, all of which is is particularly complex and challenging in in the context of Ukraine, but for which there are solutions that are out there. Um, it just you know it 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 takes some work. Yeah. Uh, here's a real question: Do you guys think that are are we out of COVID? Is the pandemic <laughs> over for 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 us? In your opinion. Do you want to take that one, Joe? Or, or first, <laughs> you know? Oh, I'd love to hear your answer. Um, yeah, you know, look, I, I, I think, I, I think the we we have we have passed the the height of the pandemic. I think just given where we are in terms of of vaccinations and kind of global uh, kind of herd immunity at this at this stage, everything should be caveated by at this stage. Um, but it's a risk we're going to have to continue to manage, right? I think not unlike natural disasters going into that risk register, COVID, and I think COVID specifically, but pandemic disease in general, needs to be in that risk register. And again, you know, not giving it kind of lip service, but really tying tying risk management measures to it. You know, one thing I remind all my clients, Ben, I'm sure you talk to people as well, is, you know, if you if you travel now. Uh, internationally, you get COVID, you're not getting back on that plane for your international flight back. You may not even be that sick. You you may it may be a mild or moderate illness, but the second you test positive, suddenly that three day trip turns into you know a much longer trip, more of an inconvenience than the risks we were mitigating early in the the pandemic. But it remains a risk, um, and certainly medical infrastructure around the world is uneven to say the least. So there are some places where even managing it medically remains a, a significant challenge. So it, it it's there. It it's it's one of many, but it hadn't gone away. Yeah, I, I would say um, definitely in 2022 we saw a, a, a greater easing of border restrictions, travel restrictions, you know, 2020 was basically locked down 2021, a little bit easier, 2022, more feasible to get into a lot of these countries. But I would say the COVID impact in 2022 is very interesting for NGOs more on the on the program side. Certainly, of course, we're referencing, you know, uh, the risk to, you know, employees and, and personnel, but uh, as far as being able to pivot back, maybe if the mission of the organization had to adapt to the pandemic from, you know, either tangential support or actual health support, and now maybe pivoting back to whatever their prior mission or have perhaps a new mission might be. And that can be uh, counter malaria work, you know, cholera work, guinea worm, things like that. And it's just interesting to see organizations might be able to kind of put that focus back on. And then of course, I'm sure there is a change in focus in a lot of these, a lot of these markets based off what was the strain on the healthcare? What does the healthcare system look like now uh, versus 2019? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shifting gears to, or regions, I should say, uh, looking at Africa, 
um, what areas or what what were the sort of major uh, security threats or risks that NGOs faced uh, from your perspective in, in that region? And understanding that that's a br very broad region and it's, you know, very convoluted and things like that, but broader Africa, let's put it that way. I'll ben, you want to jump in here? Okay. I know you want to talk about the Sahel, so I'll let you yeah, yeah. lead off on Go ahead, that. Joe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, look, I, I think one area that I, I watch a lot of clients um, focus on is, is the Sahel, right? And I think particularly Mali, Burkina to a lesser degree, Nigeria, Chad, maybe even. Um, and, and I think it was a number of issues. One, it was the, the kind of core uh, ongoing insurgencies in those countries that have, you know, and even an expansion. Yeah, I think there's a, a pretty large expansion, especially out of Mali and things like that into Burkina. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. So that that's grown. I think obviously the political instability, uh, you know, coups um, haven't haven't helped with that and have added to insecurity. And and I'll add another layer that kind of gets into a, a, a broader risk, and that is um, sort of. Uh, the impact of some geopolitics on NGOs' ability to operate, right? As we see in, in the Sahel in particular, Russian influence growing. I think we're seeing um, host countries looking at, um, looking at measures to restrict the operations of Western NGOs and whether that's more restrictive laws or reporting requirements, visas, et cetera. It, it, it's becoming more challenging, and I think we're gonna we're gonna see that as a trend. I mean, we already have. I think that trend is only going to increase, not just in the Sahel, but I think globally, um, this sort of closing of civil society space and the impact that has on NGOs. But I think it's it's been noticeable in the Sahel, along with these other issues um, that NGOs are facing there. Yeah, I, I would echo that. I would say a great example would be in Mali, where I believe it was November of last year, where they're, they're not only is there pushback on French military support in a lot of these countries, but also on NGOs, anyone in the humanitarian space connected to France has French technical support, funding, things along those lines. And, you know, the natural pushback, the push towards Russia and push back away from France and with that in mind, I, I think in the same vein of, of what Joe's talking about, we could start to see that move more broadly from just French, you know, related organizations to more US, UK, Canadian, you know, broadly across yeah. Western backed well, NGOs. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it already, right? In, in Mali, in changes in reporting requirements for, in, for NGOs and an increased interest in reporting financial data and where you're getting money and, you know, all these levers that authoritarian governments increasingly use to restrict the operations of, of NGOs, um, all in the guise of good governance, right? But I think um, it's how you use that information. We're, we're starting to see that in Mali in particular. And I think we're, we're just seeing the beginning of that. Yeah, yeah. What, um, what influences do you guys think the the broader geopolitical issues that we're facing we offline before we were mentioning China, things like that, that are happening. What are the broader implications of those geopolitical battles? Uh, you know, I'm thinking the, the growing tension between China and the United States, the obvious tension between the U S and, and Western governments with, uh, with the Russian government. 
Um, and that is playing out, it seems now, uh, mostly on the ground. Uh, certainly I've seen it from travels, you know, on the ground in, in Africa and things like that. But do you, you know, what, what are your views? Do you guys think that, that, that geopolitical tension is really going to push its way down to, you know, to that micro level for, for NGO implementation and, and things like that, or for, you know, assistance that's being implemented? Well, I, I think on just the security situation overall, if you look at that in, in those two uh, countries we were talking about, Mali, Burkina Faso, of the pivot towards Russia as sort of the military um, backer for, you know, a security guarantee or, you know, certainly with the Wagner group in those countries and having them, you know, fill in that vacuum that as the French are being kind of forced out of those countries. And what is really the capability of the Wagner group? Certainly uh, a notorious group. There's a lot of uh, connotations there as far as what their capability would realistically be from a security standpoint. And I'm not suggesting that they necessarily will uh, play by the exact same rules that like say the UN mission in Burkina Faso is and things along those lines. Um, but what does that look like? And how does the Ukraine crisis, the Ukraine war affect the Wagner group in terms of funding, resources, things along those lines and their ability to actually maintain a, a you know, it's not a stable security environment currently, but if they want to get to some sense of a stable security environment, if that's where a lot of attention is driven. Yeah, look, you know, a lot of this pushback on NGOs is not is not new. Um, we can look back to, to harassment and pressure that NGOs faced in places like Pakistan, or, um, you know, certainly I can recall in my not so not so distant past life in, in Egypt, um, where a number of NGOs were were expelled, so there there's already this this natural, if you will, tension, particularly in emerging democracies or or uh, autocratic or authoritarian states. There's already this tension with the role of NGOs, right? Um, I think the challenge is uh, now with this rising geopolitical tensions, you know, and and sort of the Russian and Chinese influence governments that, you know, what, what often kept governments in check was the flow of Western aid and the support of Western governments. Um, if they're looking more to the Chinese or Russians for that, well, suddenly they're not going to be restrained in the same way. And that, you know, that may reflect in their adherence to human rights or around corruption issues, which, you know, these are all big picture geopolitical issues, but how do they factor into NGOs? Well, you know, it may be access, right? It may be ability to get registered. It may be the ability to, you know, to, to get permits to conduct certain programs or to travel to certain areas. All of those things we've relied on from host country governments may suddenly shrink. Um, and then if you add any additional hostility, having been the, the recipient of a number of offices that are closed and, and in two very different ways, watching offices get raided, in some play cases with armed police that look like something out of a, a TV show, and others in, in sort of guys with bad fitting suits that sort of show up and, and shut down an office. So it can look very different in different places, but it has the same impact, right? It shuts down a program, even if it's just temporarily, it may expel staff. Um, and we shouldn't forget the pressure on host country staff can be enormous, right? Um, the, the, the national security intelligence infrastructure pressuring you to give information on the NGO you're working for, all these, all these kind of things 
um, just add to the already difficult uh, challenges that uh, uh, you know that host country team members face implementing programs. So I think this, uh, sadly, I think this this isn't new. It isn't going away, and I think it's increasingly it's going to increasingly get worse as this you know geopolitical tension increases. And one one type of program I would single out is the organizations that do election monitoring, which I know has a lot of um, can be controversial, as you guys know, and and some of these some of these locations. I I think just the access for those kinds of programs is going to be increasingly more difficult. Yeah, absolutely, and that sh- that space is shrinking. I mean, the uh, I mean, democracy now is really seeming to really be fighting right now for a, a foothold, uh, and it seems like it's kind of slipping in a lot of places that seemed for a while to be in an upward swing um, have really dropped a couple notches. Uh, and I think that and and civil society and NGOs are often seen as the policy, you know implementing of American or Western policy on their, you know, on their values or their systems of governance, uh, where even unrelated, you know, just general civil society capacity building uh, can be seen as very detrimental because it's like they, they don't see it that far of a jump from, oh, you're just organizing to make sure the trash is cleaned up here to, oh, now you're organizing politically uh, right. against them. No, and it's seen it's seen as threats, and and unfortunately, NGOs are seen as low hanging fruit, right? Local NGOs first, um, but then international NGOs. And I, I will say, in the past year, I have done work with clients in um, in, in Zimbabwe, um, and I'm starting a project uh, with a client in the Caucasus about this specifically to help them look at the risks associated with um, government pushback. Um, and it certainly manifests in some direct security risks, right? Wrongful detention, um, uh, again, closing down of offices, et cetera, expulsion of staff, maybe even holding people at airports, uh, international travelers. So there's a lot of kind of what we would see as security risks in this. And so, yeah, I've been working increasingly with clients to look at this, See how to mitigate um, what resources can be brought to bear uh, to help help manage this. Sadly, it, it's yeah, I'm getting more more questions about this, not not fewer. Yeah, uh, heading north a little bit, north and east from Africa to the Middle East. Um, any any things jump out at you there from from your perspective as far as things that for 2022 that were major uh, flashpoints or or points of interest that, uh, that, that you guys saw in your fields? I would say, and you could categorize it into a, a look back and a look ahead. I, I think we're going to see continued increased tension, Israel, Palestine areas, uh, both from, you know, traditional attacks, just general conflict protests, activity on both sides. It, it's really starting to heat up there. Uh, so that's certainly, uh, you know, not nothing new, but that's that's one that's very much on everybody's radar where it seems to be rationing up right now. Yeah, I'd agree. The, the other one I would just draw attention to is potential political instability in Lebanon. Um, we've seen it kind of bubble up. It hasn't quite spilled over into to big picture effect, but it's it's rumbling underneath the surface. And I, I say that in part because Lebanon has become such a, a focus for some organizations who are doing work 
in in the region given you know sort of its general infrastructure but um that could that could change we've certainly seen yeah. it flare up in the past uh across the atlantic to central and south america latin america and the caribbean uh i think i know what you guys are, who you're going to pick for 2022 <laughs> for this one but uh uh, I think there's a few candidates actually, but one in particular sticks out. So I'll run it over to Ben. Where do you guys? Uh, what, what were flashpoints in, in in the LAC region? Well, certainly, I, I think Haiti is is the the easy one, and we can get into that. I think 2022 last summer Ecuador, a lot of uh, political disruption there, um, and then as we look right now into tail end of 2022 into 2023 continued problems in, in Peru, just from a, a government standpoint of, uh, really, if you look at the last five years, a president's trying to stay in power and just any sort of functioning government in Peru leading to violence, leading to very disruptive protest activity. Uh, but you know, Haiti, Haiti is sort of the, the easy example on the dartboard of where it's just becoming less and less feasible to have a functioning program, specifically in that greater Port-au-Prince area. Um, and I know that's such an important spot for a lot of NGOs and faith-based organizations, given proximity to the US, right? But it's just the gang crisis, the political crisis, economic crisis in Haiti is sort of an, an easy one to pick. Yeah. Do you see it spilling know, over? Or sorry, go ahead, Joe. Oh. No, I was just going to riff on that just a little bit more. You know, I, I yeah, clearly Haiti kind of stands out in, in the region. Um, I just just prior to this call, got off the phone with a client who's really sitting down and, and kind of looking at their options to continue. And, and we really talked about it in terms of how what, what some historical precedents, how have organizations confronted these deep changes in risk environment? Um, and really going back, particularly as you talk to funders um, about continuing programs that may have been going on for five or 10 years in some cases, how do you go back and say, all right, now we've got to radically restructure and, you know, and, and they're looking at two options. One is a, a very, um, I don't know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Mogadishu style, um, hardened compound, armored vehicle movements, armed close protection officers. Now, Haiti's very different than those other environments, maybe a little analogous to Mogadishu at certain points in terms of the anarchic elements, right? It isn't just, um, you know, insurgents against the government. There's, there's a whole lot more going on in Haiti. But I certainly think that's one model organizations are looking at, albeit reluctantly. And the other is, you know, sort of offshore or limited offshore programming where you may run a management team from, I know one client who's doing it from the Dominican Republic with very periodic travel back into Port-au-Prince, which does then include a whole you know series of um, uh, journey management, uh, close protection team. And then you know a, a sort of skeleton Haitian national staff managing on the ground in between. Now, extraordinary risk for Haitian national staff. It doesn't, it doesn't get rid of the risk either. So no good answers there. And I know the community is struggling with it. And I think um, particularly as we start to look into 2023, unless something radically changes, I, I, I think we're going to see far, we're, we're going to see bigger changes in how organizations have to manage that risk. And that's going to mean more resources, 
um, mm -hmm. and ultimately more funding for, for security management. Yeah, I absolutely concur. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, you know, when you guys are looking at the, the, the last year and, and, and the things that we've discussed as sort of your top five or top, uh, you know, your, your top choices of what were the sort of the flashpoints around, uh, how did your clients, those that were both NGO and I think the NGO sector could learn a lot from the private sector um, and vice versa, but, you know, so wherever your clients were, what were the, how are they dealing with those security issues that they faced? Uh, what resources were they, were they tapping into? Joe. Or yeah. yeah, you know, I, you know, I think in in some ways we had a, and and I think many organizations took uh, advantage of an opportunity coming out of the height of the pandemic to relook at their systems, right? Their security risk management plans, their procedures, how they were assessing risk, um, and I, I I think a great number of our clients really went back and refreshed those systems, driven in part by need, right? I think the the pandemic made many users more conscious of their risk, more travelers, um, end users, if you will, um, more conscious of their risk. And they came to their organizations and said, what, what are we doing about X or Y? People who prior to the pandemic were sort of those seasoned travelers who would hop on planes and go anywhere and do anything without asking any questions, suddenly were asking questions. And so I think some of it was demand driven. Some of it, I think security management teams said, hey, we need to we need to go back and refresh. So, and the one area, or I guess two areas where I think there was particular emphasis, one is around rolling in individual risk profiles into risk assessments. And I think, again, that was happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic really accelerated it because each of our health, personal health factors really influenced our ability to travel at various points. And so I think that then pushed more and more organizations to say, okay, well, if it's individual health, it's also, you know, uh, sexual identity. It's also gender-based issue. Let's pull in all those individual risk factors and make sure we're not just looking at country risks, organizational risks. And I think the community has been good at, about those, right? Um, but let's also bring in that individual we're sending. What are the risk factors that they face and how, how do we need to manage? So I think those were there. Um, and I think training. I think I, I've had so many more requests for, I shouldn't say training, education more broadly, right? Everything from traditional heat or heat fat training to micro learning to how do we prepare people to, to better engage with our third-party assistance provider. So, so I think that that risk assessment piece and the learning have been two big areas that, that clients have really used to address. And, and ultimately, it's helped address and, and manage the, the ever-evolving risk environments we find ourselves in. Um, very similar thoughts on the risk profile concept. I think uh, from my perspective, I see more organizations and more travelers be forthcoming uh, with about those issues of... Uh, gender, sexuality, and certainly the health information as we keep going into. Even things on health, people send, uh, travelers tend to be a bit more uh, forthcoming with what medications they're on. And there's a lot of rules about, can you bring this particular medication into a specific country or a country you're transiting through? And there's a lot of nuance there of the 
what makes up those medication and like the different lists and standards per country. So that's that's something I've, I've seen that I think has been a positive. Agree with the training. Definitely on like heat fat and heat training. Those stand out to me. Um, where I would say in addition is I think a lot of organizations look at that kind of training for maybe a subsect of their population that was going into those very intense locations, Afghanistan being like an easy example, right? Whereas I think what I'm seeing is their organizations are seeing value to spread that out across their population. And, and in some respects, that might make their overall uh, population more prepared, right? But then also maybe more flexible of, okay, we have people in Ukraine, you know, who else can join a program like that and kind of meeting that standards. And um, similarly, when we talked about the local national uh, aspect earlier, and, and certainly one of the things I encourage is bringing that training or a variation of that training down to the local level. Because at the end of the day, those are the people who are really operating in those markets. When we're talking about Haiti, we're talking about kidnapping risk. We're talking about Ukraine, we're talking about landmines, things like that. Yeah. You know, Ben, that's a really good point. And I think one thing that I've, I've noticed more and more clients focusing on is that you know, risk is managed at the farthest point, right? So it's 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 not being managed from you know where where Omri sits at headquarters, right? It's being managed by that person who gets in a vehicle in rural Uganda and drives from point A to point B, and making sure that all those systems you've put in place flow down, and that they understand how do I how do I do a pre-trip risk assessment? How do I access emergency medical care if I need it. So I think, and again, I th this was present before the pandemic, but I think a lot of this was really accelerated and, and um, jump-started, if you will, through the pandemic. There's been greater effort to say, Ben, I think to your point, let's make sure we're getting that information down to those people who are out there um, exposing themselves to the risk, right? Just that the country director gets this isn't sufficient. It really needs to be to that full team and that that host country team in particular. Yeah. Uh, following up on that, and before I want to get your views on the look, you know, forward looking views, um, what are some of the less the top lessons learned uh, from the last year? I mean, again, you guys talked to for a of the resources and some of the changes that they're doing, but what are the lessons learned from, from the last year's events that, that you think should be uh, handed down to security managers and, and stuff like that? Um, I would say some of the ones that stand out to me, back to that point of flexibility, if, if having your plans not, so your response plans, whether it be more local level or, or wider crisis plans, not having them be so narrowed down that they can be ineffective. Because as we know, like take for instance, a pandemic, right? that can take many different types of forms. You know, there's general themes there, but being able to pivot those to the situation. Um, and then another great lesson, and it kind of goes back into the last point we we're talking about of the local local population is trying to use them as the uh, as such a great local intelligence source. Even if they're not in a security role, they have valuable information and they have access to that local community provide really good information just about protest activity, roadblocks, what are we seeing from general sentiment in these areas and, and security managers being able to tap into those resources. And they may think of it as 
kind of a one-way street and they're setting the tone security down, it can go two ways of getting that great information. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, one big lesson kind of obvious, but is that risk is cross-operational, right? It, it cuts across teams and at an organization. And so I'm, I'm seeing more and more of a trend of rather than one, one department owns if you will, the uh, you know risk register or the risk management systems that they may they may coordinate, but it's shared more across the organization in terms of how is risk impacting the organization, what measures do we have in place to manage them, what resources are we bringing to bear. It makes for a um, uh, often a more convoluted process, but ultimately the end result tends to be a stronger sense of shared risk management a um, little bit of herding cats but i think it it tends to be worth it and one area in particular i've seen this with with a number of clients is with column slightly different things but maybe a a risk management or security management committee or working group that isn't just headquarters people it also includes um, team members from around the globe to help really influence the structure of risk management systems. Is the format of our plan that we use in every country helpful? What kind of training do teams really need? You know, and I think that sort of, it, it in the truest sense, has diversified and drawn in more thought that, again, takes more work to do, but I think ultimately results in stronger um, stronger organizational risk management. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, time to take out your crystal balls. We're going to look and see uh, what the future holds for for NGO security managers in the coming for 2023. We've already we're already almost two months in, uh, at least a month and a half in, I guess, to 2023. So, what are your predictions that uh, for the future of of our field? Uh, what should we be looking at as we as we enter this? this year. Uh, ben, go ahead. Okay, I'll, I'll run down a quick list. And I, I think there's a lot of carryover from what we already talked about. From a hotspot perspective, Haiti is still going to be on there. Ukraine, and what does Ukraine look like? I think Ukraine has kind of taken different forms as the months kind of ebb and flow uh, for what many expect to be offensives and counter offensives, or, you know, certainly here in the spring. Um, Turkey and Syria, obviously, based off what we've seen just in the past week, the devastating earthquake there is going to be kind of a natural focus for relief efforts. Um, I mentioned Peru and sort of political instability, but I think that's more broad for just political instability uh, in a lot of areas across the globe. You know, we've certainly seen a lot of uh, military coup style events in the last several years, and I would expect that to continue. Um and um, in a non-hotspot perspective, I would say one thing to keep in mind is changing a little bit in local laws and misinformation, disinformation, things along those lines. Just taking that example of Peru, like we were just talking about, of you know different laws in place and equating what is terrorism right into what are people posting on social media and different laws like that we're seeing throughout the globe that can have real repercussions on um, organizations that aren't, you know, conducting violence or anything like that, that can be interpreted from a, a legal and potential de detainment standpoint. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, kind of following on that, I think that that broader theme we talked about on, you know, closing of, of space for NGOs and civil society, I think kind of plays into Ben's last point, um, you know, and, and actually into to the point about um, sort of disruptive political transitions. You know, some of these all sort of mesh together, but I think the the closing of space for for NGOs is is going to grow um, as as you know we talked about the the uh, kind of geopolitical great power, if you will, sort of rivalries that are out there, as well as the the disruptive political transitions and rise of some authoritarian and semi-authoritarian uh, governments creating laws that are going to be more onerous. You throw into the mix disinformation and misinformation, and you've got a real kind of cauldron of potential instability that NGOs can get caught up in, um, whether it's that demonstration and kind of kinetic activity there or a legal infrastructure that may make the work you do suddenly really ambiguous and a, a public announcement you make may, may, you may find yourself on the wrong side of government laws on communicating about kind of fill in the blank, right? Um, and, or you may be sued by another entity in a, in a country for, for the actions you've taken. So I think we're, we're going to see more and more of that as the space closes. Um, and managers, security managers in particular, I think can't, can't separate themselves from that, right? In some, some cases, this is a legal issue. In some cases, it may emerge as a banking or financial issue, but there are operational risk uh, factors involved. And I think it doesn't do anybody any good going back to that cross-operationalization of risk to look at these, to look at that pushback in silos, right? It's not just a legal issue. It's not just a financial issue or an HR issue. It's an organizational risk issue. Um, so I think that's that to me is going to be a big trend to continue. I think um, natural disasters, I, I think we can't we can't escape the the ongoing realities of that. Obviously, we haven't in 2023, the tragedy that's unfolding right now in Turkey and Syria. And I think we're going to see more impact, big and, and small, of, of climate change, natural disasters as we as we kind of go forward. Regionally, I think, you know, we've touched on Ukraine, Haiti. Obviously, I think the Sahel will continue to unfortunately deteriorate both from an insurgency perspective, but also a closing space perspective. Mm. Uh, when you guys are doing your analysis and, and you know, advising your clients, and what are some of the resources that you find most useful uh, you know, in your day-to-day -day searches that, that, that would be helpful for uh, NGO security managers to tap into? Uh, ben. So um, I think from a research standpoint, that's, you know, from my group, it's more of a combination of historical knowledge, both, you know, country specific, but regionally um, tapping into, of course, government sources. I think they're, they're helpful, but better if they're kind of aggregated together to look for common themes between what different governments are, are putting out. Um, I'm a big advocate of a lot of the great networking groups that we have here. Certainly OSAC, I think is excellent. I, I would specifically single out those uh, regional councils and they have those email um, distribution lists where people can submit questions. I think that's really helpful. Um, and the country councils, I would say the analyst roundtable is an excellent group um, that has both, you know, a regional and regional chapters that I'm a big fan of. And then if I'm looking for information more tactically, 
Um, it's great. And certainly from an NGO security manager standpoint, going back to tapping into that local network, I think that can be really helpful. And, um, a great example would be in Haiti with these, all these fake based organizations, cause that's such a hub. They often have these large WhatsApp groups that, you know, I, I have certainly seen, um, and they share great information related to there's a roadblock here. We're expecting protests in this part. Of, of the city today, what are you seeing? Crime? Oh, there was just a kidnapping over here. So I think that information sharing and then building that within your peer group, uh, certainly with organizations that operate in a similar area. Yeah, look, I, I mean, nothing beats those those information sharing networks, whether at the country level or the the global, you know, OSAC. Um, uh, uh, different working groups that are that are there. Um, I would add one other resource that I, I feel like um, often often gets overlooked. I think that um, you know uh, security and medical assistance providers are often seen as a great and they are a great source of information, kind of at the big picture level. Um, but the um, crisis response provider or um, uh, special risks response provider that comes as a part of the, that insurance we're not all supposed to talk about, but we all know is essential, kidnap, ransom, extortion insurance. That's a really valuable resource. They, you know, We often think of them as a purely reactionary resource. If you get somebody detained, you get somebody kidnapped, you call them, they help you manage. And, and that is correct. That, that is their principal role. But increasingly, I'm finding, and this has been particularly true in Haiti and Ukraine, actually, that that though the, the the crisis response providers are incredible proactive resources to talk about what does that risk environment look like what are the actual and, and this is particularly true in Haiti what are those what does that kidnap environment look like right now almost in real time um, and what are the mitigation best practices because the ones from last month or certainly three months ago probably aren't effective anymore. So I think that resource as a proactive resource is is invaluable. And you know, just like, you know, as I'm sure Ben would say for the, the folks at on call, you know, calling in and talking to an analyst or somebody is crucial. I, I you know, the, the crisis response providers would say the same thing. They are always, in my experience, more than happy. And we coordinate calls all the time with um, you know, the likes of control risks, crisis 24, not to drop too many names, but I think they're the big players in this space to talk about, um, those risk environments and mitigation measures. And I would just really encourage organizations to, to tap into that. It's a resource you have available. And I, and I would piggyback on that to say, especially when it comes to, uh, the crisis management or crisis response organizations, uh, you know, that, that you're tapped into it's get to know them now because the crisis is not the time to start saying, hi, my name is Omri Cooper and I'm with this organization. And you've never seen our plans. You've never seen our procedures. You've never, we've never chatted or talked before. Uh, and so now, but now we're going to be best friends because we're going to be together for the next whatever period of time that lasts and it's going to be really intense. So I would say get to know them now. And, and I would go for the same thing for the likes of OnCall or ISOS or, or other organizations like that. You know, call them up and check out, hear what they say when you call up and say, hi, I'm trapped in whatever or I've got a medical issue so that you know what that sounds like and you know the procedures that they're uh, that they're doing, you know, before it happens. Um, and so you, when someone asks you a question, agree. you know that yeah. uh, you know how to answer it. Sorry, go ahead, Ben. 
Now, I said, I absolutely agree from the assistance provider standpoint. That's what we prefer is to build those relationships ahead of time. Uh, I completely agree on the crisis, you know, specialty crimes, those kind of crisis response providers as well. In some cases are the same entity. In some cases, it may not be. I think a lot of organizations forget that there's some good resources through that crisis response provider relationship as well um, in terms of intelligence and things along those lines. It's a little bit of forgotten in sort of their uh, provider list because hopefully those cases are fewer and far between, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Uh, All right, we're coming close to the end of the hour. Um, So I just have one last question for you both. Uh, and that is a question I think I ask all of our guests, and that is, what is on your nightstand from a reading perspective? Or what are you reading right now? So I'll throw it to Joe first. Wow. Yeah, I, I think and Ben and be, I might I mean, have... Obviously, it's great from a security manager perspective, like what are some <laughs> books to read? But I mean, if you're reading a, a romance novel or something like that, that's that's fine too. Yeah, no no, no romance novels here, but um, <laughs> um, sort of in the in the true like like um, topic and... The um, kidnap inside the ransom business by um, Anya Shortland is is something I'm working through now. It's 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 a good kind of business focused analysis of of the world of of kidnap for ransom. It's 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 a fascinating sort of dive into it from a perspective we often don't get. But but I want to plug two other books um, by the same author, Ty Gagne, who wrote two books ostensibly about um, search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, not far from, I think, where Ben is right now. But really, the subtext of both of them is about risk management, decision making, and kind of going back to our earlier point, how people who go out and do things make decisions that ultimately influence their exposure to risk. And so I think if you kind of read it from that perspective, it's a they're, they're interesting books. One is called Where You'll Find Me about a particular climber who who was lost. Um, and the other is called The Last Traverse um, about two two climbers, one who survived and one who didn't. Um, and uh, and the sort of the efforts, both their thought process, decision making, as well as then the, the search. So again, a little off topic, but I think still draws in the risk management perspective. And good reads too. Yeah, I, I had the the same book as far as uh, a book that's on my bookshelf. I need to read that Anja Shortland book on the kidnap business, um, mostly because she spoke at a at an OSAC event in London uh, this past fall, and she was the guest speaker. And, and so that's uh, on my short list to read. Um, another one I'd recommend is Crisis Ready by Melissa Agnes, and that is more private sector driven, but I think there's a lot of good lessons learned and just about crisis management in general, where it's constructing crisis management plans. She dives a lot into reputational aspects of crisis management, which is certainly applicable to NGOs in terms of managing that message, donors, funding, you know, PR kind of issues as well. So I think that's a great one to read if anyone is in the process of trying to build out a crisis management plan. I'd also plug uh, a similar crisis management book by uh, Regina Phelps. I, I believe it's I believe it's her name. Great. Well, Ben Longworth of On Call International, Joe Gleason of AHT Insurance. Thank you both for being guests on Insta Insights, and we hope to have you guys back on the show again. Thank you to the Robert McPherson Fellowship for its generous support and donation, helping to make these podcasts possible.